In episode eight, there are three. No. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, you're going to have to start it over. <laughs> How did I get started? Um, Welcome to Across the Sunring Seas. I'm Zach Hudspeth. And I'm Nathan Dewberry. Over the next. <laughs> Why is it so slow? Is that how you say that? I don't even remember. <clears throat> if my boss is watching this, it's a joke. Welcome to Across the Sundering Seas. I'm Zach Hudspeth. And I'm Nathan Dewberry. Over the next several podcasts, we're going to break down the Rings of Power, Episode 8, Alloyed. We're joined by the Education Secretary for the Tolkien Society, Will Sherwood. With the season being completed, we figured we could take a little longer to look into the episode and break it down over a few podcasts. Alone, this is just a journey. Adventures, they must be shared. We're excited to be able to share this with you. My name is Will Sherwood. On my fifth birthday, my mum and dad bought me a radio uh, version of The Hobbit. We put it on and I was falling asleep. I was already quite tired. Um, But we had the fire on, the TV was on as well, I think. Um, But the fire was directly in front of me. And it was the one where Bilbo was kind of being interviewed almost by the narrator. I remember it just being such a great adaption like it really hooked me in um and it got to the moment where the dwarves are singing the lonely mountain verse and bilbo is looking into the fire and he feels the stirred like the the tookish genes are being stirred up and i was also uh, dozing and staring into the fire as well so there was almost kind of like an intimate um connection uh and i did feel that uh i felt quite empathetic towards bilbo in that moment and because we did a lot of um journeys in the car um and i think i had like a tape player around the same time uh it pretty much ended up going with me everywhere so with in a couple of weeks i could recite most of uh, the actual tapes a few years later obviously the jackson films come out i had read the hobbit um i had not read lord of the rings at that point so jackson was my introduction to the lord of the rings specifically i did not read the books in between either so it was very much a case of um wanting to experience the story on the big screen and finding out what happened on the big screen um obviously the ralph bakshi um was kind of being promoted when fellowship of the ring came out on vhs classic vhs loved the vhs um and so watched that so kind of knew a bit about two towers and what was going to happen Um, so years went by i constantly was trying to get Lord of the Rings somehow into my schoolwork, uh, write stories from other characters' perspectives, um, 
and when it got to A-level English, I chose the Arendel poem, the first uh, quite significant poem that Tolkien wrote of his legendarium, um, full of uh, very strong rhyme oxymorons and um, uh, internal rhyme as well. So I, the first essay that, that I wrote on it was quite significant, handed it in to my teacher. Uh, and she turned around and said, right, now you've got that all of that out of your system. Let's just focus on the actual English analysis that the examiner is going to understand. So there, were, there was way too much referencing to uh, the Silmarillion uh, and the wider stories of Middle-earth. So yeah, I had to take it from there and suddenly kind of reduce it down to here. Got to university and no one would support me doing a dissertation on Tolkien because no one knew Tolkien that much. Um, so I started to go down the Romanticism route, which I really, really enjoyed. And was starting to kind of piece together my own kind of ideas on Tolkien and Romanticism. And over the next couple of years, just kind of, you know, uh, bought a few books, uh, Verlin Flieger, Tom Shippey, and I'd just kind of be reading them in my own time. And then all of a sudden, kind of got this idea about Tolkien and the romantic poet John Keats being quite similar in some ways. And I recalled talking or going to see Professor Nick Groom deliver a paper on Tolkien and Cornwall um, at a local literary festival in Foy in Cornwall, where I grew up. And he was fantastic. He was really, really engaging. And I knew about the Cornwall connection anyway. But I was like, oh, this is a professor from university. Like, this is amazing. Um, and I, re I always remembered this chap, Nick Groom. And I think I checked out his profile a couple of times on uh, Exeter University. And it got to the stage, I was like, right, I've got an idea. I don't really want to do a taught course. This feels more like a, a research project. And so I, I reached out to him and he was extremely supportive uh, and said, right, let's have, you know, let's have a meeting, let's put together a proposal. Um, and so I put together the proposal um, and skip ahead a couple of years and I submit a 40,000 word uh, master's by research on uh, Tolkien and Keats, which was really, really exciting. Um, I had the chance to go and look at Tolkien's uh, manuscripts at the Bodleian uh, Library. I went up to King Edward School in Edinburgh and looked through uh, the old, so the external people who come into uh, review a school and how the school is doing. So I read a couple of those reports. I found evidence in his undergraduate notebooks in the Bodleian that, <laughs> that Dimitri Femi and Nick Groom had speculated about, but there was no evidence. And here it was in one of his undergraduate notebooks, the actual evidence that he was aware of these two particular writers from the 18th century. Um, and so that was quite significant. And I finished uh, my MA and during 
that process had been to the Tolkien Society uh, seminar, Tolkien and the Pagan, and was introduced to a range of scholars, completely freaked out uh, meeting those people as well. They were celebrity status to me. Uh, and they were extremely kind, extremely supportive. And we then had the Talking 2019 conference the following year, which I then attended. I presented some of my research there as well, which uh, Christina Skull and Wayne Hammond were in the front row for. <laughs> so that was a little bit intimidating, uh, but they were also extremely supportive. Um, and at that event, I was talking to a couple of members of the committee. Um, and it turns out their education secretary was stepping down. Now, I had a, uh, a career in education. And after my MA, I was going back to continue teaching. Uh, so I thought, hmm, sounds like the perfect opportunity to uh, marry uh, these two parts of my life together. And a few years on, I'm still the education secretary for the uh, Tolkien Society. I've published uh, a part, part of my um, MA thesis as well in the Journal of Journal of Tolkien Research, um, and I'm currently editing um, the Romantic Spirit in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien uh, with Julian Eelman as well, who is a fellow romanticist uh, and Tolkien fan, which kind of brings me to this moment here. I just need to get the PhD uh, started sooner rather than later. What is your plan for your PhD? What are you thinking you're going to do? So I'm going to look at how Tolkien builds on the romantic elements that are inherent within his work. So that's a bit strange way to say it. Um, but how, how does he take romanticism and reinvent it for the 20th century? So next major step is the PhD on Tolkien and romanticism. Years ago, they started talking about a TV show for Lord of the Rings. Uh, when did you first get rumblings of it? And what were your initial thoughts? I don't even remember. It was so long ago. Uh, uh Oh, wait, no, I was definitely doing my MA. Yes, because I'd gone back to Cornwall. So the earliest that I definitely remember would have been late 2017 or early 2018. And so all we knew at the time was, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a TV show and it's going to be linked to Lord of Rings. So myself and my supervisor, like if you do not know Professor Nick Green's work, go read his work, it's incredible. Like there's a reason why um, I keep on talking about him. He's, he's a phenomenal scholar. Um, but we were talking about, oh, you know, what could they do? And we were like, well, you know, there's been a bit of speculation about um, Aragorn, like, you know, his story. So we were talking about how the, in the appendices where you've got Aragorn and Arwen, um, as well as some, it's such beautiful writing that that could genuinely be a story and people really would get behind that. I mean, best of luck finding someone to replace Viggo Mortensen. But 
we really would get behind it um, as well. So I think I know a lot of people were uncertain as to is this is this a um, are they doing a series version of the book? So are they going to retell the actual book itself? At no point, I don't remember at any point thinking that was the plan. I could understand how people got a bit confused. Um, and maybe it wasn't the best idea for Amazon to be like, ooh, we're going to do Lord of the Rings, because obviously everyone would be like, what? <laughs> this this work, that chat, that, you know, people hold, some people hold Jackson's adaption as like the greatest adaption ever. And, uh, you know, they compare like Jackson's adaption to, you know, how many Oscars it won to Harry Potter compared to God knows how many um, Marvel films. Lord of the Rings still has the most Oscars. Um, and some people just naturally don't like Jackson's adaptions. Um, but the idea of re rewriting Jackson, you know, within 20 years after Lord of the Rings came out, you know, heresy, it would be to some people. Um, and I can understand why some people might think that, but personally, no, I just, it's like, I get to go back to Middle Earth. If they're doing it in New Zealand, that is just going to be special. Because for me, that was the first thing I ever saw of Middle Earth. Beforehand, it was always in my mind because it was a radio adaption to me. Uh, so, I, and then I kept forgetting about it because we just didn't get any news for ages. And then obviously the big picture of um, the, the two trees and who we now know to be Finrod uh, was released. Um, and then I completely forgot about it again. Uh, so, yeah, kind of like a little bit like a, a Mexican wave in uh, my reactions to it. You also are big into uh, music. Um, can we lay a foundation for that so that when we can jump into it uh, as we discuss uh, this episode? Music's always kind of been part of my childhood and growing up um my grandparents are kind of a bit more into the classical sphere um which is fine uh it's it's what they like and my parents are a bit a bit more diverse in their range uh and my mum used to play the piano when she was younger for uh, one of her birthdays uh, my grandparents bought her a piano um and i just kind of hopped on and started to write my own music um and i think it got to the stage where my parents were just like right just do you want to have lessons so i ended up uh, taking piano lessons and it just kind of like spiraled from there um like university i focused on the english but i was still doing like orchestra and choir and other bits and bobs um and it's i, th I think as well kind of like how chores Scores to the Lord of the Rings were a real turning point um, because I'd never. Sometimes you hear like Mozart and Beethoven, and almost like 
you just switch off to it straight away like that nah, not gonna listen to it um whereas the i don't know what it was but i was just more ex willing to listen to Harold Shaw um and that was my gateway into orchestral and choir music and I've never looked back since that that really was a pivot point um so much so that listening to Bear McCreary's music for The Rings of Power it's it's really brought back memories of listening Howard music for the first time and it's almost kind of like a rediscovery um like he that is how brilliant bear has been with the score that is how good his music for the rings of power has been you were telling me that each episode got its own full score so initially bear released a two and a half hour score which had all of the themes on there most of the themes got there <laughs> like technically all of them but he didn't name them all cheeky um they all got their own suite uh, uh so like three to four minutes some a little bit longer where you just hear that theme um and that's about 40 50 minutes maybe an hour or something it's quite a substantial amount of music and then the rest of it is uh, cues from the series itself uh, so the, like the boat for example like when Galadriel's on the boat and she the grey rain curtain folds back and she decides to leave that entire cue is on there um, the battle for the South Southlands is cut up into different cues and they're different tracks so that is the two and a half hour, just kind of a casual listening experience. Kind of like you, you've got the whole of season one, everything you kind of want in that one, two and a half hours. Um, it's recently been updated with Fiona Apple's um, vocal rendition of uh, Where the Shadows Lie as well. I'd really recommend uh, people have a listen. It's got real resonance and depth. To it. So I've, been, I've enjoyed having that uh, new aspect to it. And then on top of that, with each episode, Bear initially released only on Apple, uh, only on Amazon Music. Uh, the the almost I think literally there's about ninety nine percent of the music on there. Um, the music for each episode. So you'd have like 40, 50 minutes. Um, of music released per week. However, and, I've always, <laughs> and I have done this, so it is now all eight albums are now on Spotify as well. So if you put his two and a half hour album and all eight uh, individual episode scores together, you would end up with nine hours and 43 minutes at 109 songs, which I am, really going to look forward to listening to what is the importance uh of of music why why do they put this stuff in into the the scripts and why do they put so much into it the effort that's a really good question and it's um so i teach music and english um and with my 
uh, year nine students, we have, we have a unit that specifically looks at film music. And I open up with a video uh, that answers this exact question. Like, what is the point of music in film or TV? Why does it need to be there? Or what does it necessarily need to be there? So it opens up a lot of questions. But uh, we do a scenario where we take the opening scene from Lion King, um, so ridiculously famous um, scene. We all know the, the rising sun suddenly bringing light into the world, uh, new new life, birth, symbolism, X, Y, Z. Um, and that voice is so powerful and so penetrating. Um, what if you replaced that with a funeral march? What suddenly happens because those colours, yes, they're they're powerful and they can be symbolic of royalty and strength, but the the very rich reds, the blacks, the um, could also be symbolic of death as well. So music has the ability to completely and radically change the meaning of what you're watching and it works um it's basically your navigator it that is literally it, it it is your navigator to understand what is going on if there is a if there's sad music playing then that is telling you how you should be feeling or it's telling you what a character is feeling as well so it's even the most the smallest of moments can if you're listening can tell you something about the character and i think there's a really good moment where bear for the um the insider um, documentaries on each episode we got to Oh, what episode was it? It wasn't Udun, it was the, the next one. The aftermath of Odruin uh, erupting. And Elendil is watching all the Numenorians come up the hill and he sees Beric. Um, it's like, wait, Sildur must be there. So he's obviously been looking for his son. Then it's not Sildur. So the dum dum da dum, when it does bum 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 bum, when it lands on that fourth note, the chord um, that Bear used had to reflect how Elendil was feeling, and he was, you know, in in the interview as well, he says how he, you know, he was, like his eyes were streaming because the composer can get so immersed into the character um, and into the feeling of the of what they are trying to score because ultimately it's an, it's a it's a job where you must be able to, to empathize with the characters because you've got to create create music that kind of tells us what they're thinking and what they're feeling we have gotten seven episodes of the rings of power and then episode eight drops. I was expecting a two hour episode. I, I felt like it needed 
time to wrap up. Um, what were your your thoughts leading up to episode eight? I get up at six or just before six o'clock to watch it um, every Friday. Um, and my teaching load is uh, not that much on a Friday either. So I'm like, I can get away with this and, you know, hypothetically nap in the afternoon uh, because I haven't got classes. Um, if my boss is watching this, it's a joke. Um, so I thought it would be epic if it was really long, kind of like Stranger Things season four, um, part two, which was like, you know, a two hour and then an hour and a half, you know, kind of like the length of Lord of the Rings, like one of the Lord of the Rings films, um, over two episodes. So yeah, that would be awesome. And I don't mind slow pace at all. I mean, you watch Fellowship of the Ring, like I know people who hate Fellowship of the Ring because they say it's so slow. And I think that's a really useful reminder if anyone says the pace is slow. It's like, have you watched Jackson's adaptions? Have you read Fellowship of the Ring? Like it takes them, what, like 300, yeah, 300 pages, 250 pages, just to get to Rivendell. Like it's 50 pages between, um, <laughs> Weathertop and Rivendell is like, oh no, we've got to go over that hill. You know what I made a mistake, we've got to go back. Oh, we can't get over the river, we're going to have to go a few miles south. Oh yeah, Frodo's also sick. So, pace, not an issue. Um, I was quite happy that it was just about the same length as the other episodes. Sometimes if they do, I mean, especially those last two episodes of uh, strange things way too long way way too long um, if it's narrative driven great if it's character driven great but if you're just waffling and throwing things in for the sake of it and just get out of the writing room um, so I, I genuinely thought hmm, okay hour and 12 minutes I think with well, that, that's roughly what it said on Amazon uh, when I saw it. I was like, yeah, okay, standard episode. It's no different from the others. And I think that's the point I'm trying to get at, is it didn't feel any different. It wasn't hyped up or anything like that. Yes, it's the end, it's the conclusion, but it's just like the other episodes. And yeah, I appreciated that. I saw three storylines here. We had the Numenorean storyline. We had the Stranger storyline. And we had uh, Galadriel and Halbran in Eregion. Is that how you say that? Eregion, yeah. I think, I think that's right. So I have a problem with names, by the way. I always say the names wrong. Uh, so when I, when I go ahead and say it right, I don't actually know that I'm saying it right. <laughs> well, do remember Tolkien himself sometimes couldn't actually uh, decide which way to say certain names there you go so there we go you're good you're yeah, yeah. you're good well great <laughs> in episode eight there are three storylines the numenorians the stranger and harfoots and galadriel and halbrand in region we will split the three storylines into three podcasts and will sherwood will help us lead the adventure so join us next time as we venture across the sundering seas we do not say goodbye we say namarie, namarie.